Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. Coming to you from the other London, let's start the show. Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western. Speaking to you now is Susan Anthony, my first time interviewer, and with me is Yimin Chen. Hello. Well, we are speaking today with Anandita Ghosh, um, a master's student in law. And hello, Anandita. Can you tell us a bit about your research? Yes. Uh, so I'm uh, doing my master's in studies of law. And uh, my research area is in self-defense law in Canada. And uh, as it relates to the case of battered women who have killed their violent partners in non-confrontational incidents. So what I'm looking at right now is um, we have had um, a new uh, law being introduced. And when I say new law, our old uh, law of self-defense, which is Section 34 of the Criminal Code, has been reformed. And um, it's been reformed. And what I'm basically looking at is if the new law betters the representation of battered women who have killed their partners, and uh, by representation, I mean that what is the legal rhetoric that surrounds their claims to self-defense? It's Is it more nuanced? Is it uh, better for understanding the context under which they have killed? And if this would lead to a more successful treatment of their case for self-defense? Okay. So, Andy, uh, this topic, battered women who have killed their violent partners in non-confrontational situations, is that it? That's correct. Could you help us unpack that? Like, what does that mean right. outside of the, the legal terms here? No, that's, that's a great question. So this is a very uh, specific uh, situation that I'm looking at, but it is not uh, specific enough in terms of its occurrence. Mm -hmm. So what I mean by that is, uh, f first of all, most research has shown that most battered women, when they do happen to kill, they do it in non-confrontational incidents. And what I mean by non-confrontational incidents is that they're not in a situation where they're being physically attacked at the moment by their abusers. So they use the element of stealth or surprise to take over their abusers. So something might include that um, her partner was sleeping and she shot him while he was sleeping. And as you can understand that even outside the context of domestic violence, uh, this has posed some very uh, problematic considerations when you are making a self-defense claim. If there wasn't an immediate situation of danger, so to say, uh, as, as far as the traditional doctrine of self-defense goes. Like, was she really killing in self-defense? Or was this anger? Was this revenge? Was the situation really that bad? Were there other mitigating circumstances? So we want to be nuanced about our understanding of what it means to kill uh, someone when they are passive. Okay. Well, thanks. Uh, what I was wondering, uh, do you say this is new, uh, this new reform? That's right. Um, it came on, uh, the, the new uh, law and uh, came into effect March 13th of 2013. Okay. And up until that point, what, what is the sort of the background of this story? What was it up until this point? Okay. So up until this, uh, uh, up until this new law came in, 
right? I, I guess let me first situate this by telling you what the new law is for those of you who are not very well mm-hmm. informed about uh, the provision of self-defense in our criminal code. The law currently, and Section 34, is split up into uh, two sections. So this section deals with the defense of person. The first section is uh, stipulates three core requirements that informs the objective and subjective test for establishing a reasonableness, okay? So the first provision is really that there was reasonable apprehension of grievous bodily harm or death, okay? The second provision is that the action that was taken was purposive to resolving the threat. So, you know, if you are being attacked by a knife, it's not that you basically stole his credit card and maxed it out. It's not purposive to what the threat was, right? The third provision, and this is the more interesting one, that the act that was committed in self-defense is reasonable in the circumstances. Now, circumstances is informed by subsection two. So what the law has now introduced is a list of uh, factors that the courts or the trier of fact can evaluate in being able to inform the discussion under what were the circumstances surrounding the person who acted in self-defense. So some of these factors would be what was the prior relationship between the accused and the deceased person? Was there a history of violence? What were uh, some of the physical differences? So if she was uh, um, experiencing threat by an abuser who is basically 200 pounds and she weighs 115 pounds, again, there are these are uh, important uh, differences in terms of ability and in the ability to be able to defend oneself. Mm-hmm. So uh, before this point, uh, what you're saying is that didn't come into effect. It was just the immediate circumstances of the instance. So it, it almost was irrelevant what their past history was. Right. So prior to that, what uh, the law happened to have was um, something all along the lines that was much more vague and uh, much more um, problematic. So we, at this point in time, the big difference between um, the current law and the prior law is that we didn't have subsection two that gave a list of non-exhaustive factors that the courts could um, use to inform the discussion around circumstances. It was more along the lines of an objective and a subjective test to inform reasonableness. So, so sorry, to just stop you there, I'm yeah. really curious about what you mean by objective and subjective test of reasonableness. That's, I, I understand, it's like, one of those things, I understand all the words, but put into this context, what is, um, what do you mean by objective and subjective right. test? And, the, and that's a great question, and this, this will also answer uh, the state of the law prior to it being reformed. Okay, so what traditionally the subjective and the objective test meant is that there is an objective test in law, uh, which is set up by the standards of what a reasonable person would do in a particular circumstance. Okay, that's the objective test. The subjective test takes into account the knowledge of the person acting in self-defense that mitigated decisions around whether he or she should act in self-defense. Okay, so. Uh, to put it into context, the law prior to that uh, stipulated that there was reasonable apprehension, again, of bodily harm or death. The second thing is that there was imminence. And what I mean by imminence is that there was a pressing a need 
to act in self-defense because the danger was immediate. So that's true. What we know more as a self-defense exactly, act is exactly. in the moment. Intuitively. Yes, yeah. exactly. That intuitively, that is what comes to mind. That there was a situation, there was a threat you were faced with and you acted in response to that. Okay. The uh, third thing was of uh, proportionality, which is that the the action that you committed in, in self-defense was proportional to the threat that you were faced with and that uh, you had no other alternatives but to act in self-defense. This is a very key point about whether she had other choices. Mm-hmm. So there was a word you, you used several times earlier. It yeah. was reasonableness and reasonable person. Yeah. Um, I understand those are sort of legal terms within the law. Could you explain what what that means? What is a reasonable person and what are sort of reasonable actions? That's a very, very good question. <laughs> and that's... Uh, that has been the point of contention in law, okay. right? How do you define a reasonable person, right? And how do you define a reasonable person in the context of a battered woman mm-hmm. who has suffered years of uh, domestic violence, right? Um, how do you construct reasonableness when the set of facts is very different between you being attacked by a knife, by a stranger, and you having a continual threat of violence with somebody who you may be intimately involved with or might have uh, kids and be in love with. You know, Mm -hmm. those are very two different circumstances uh, to be considered here. So in order to, I guess, unpack reasonableness simply, a reasonable person, like I said, it's an objective test. What would a reasonable person, if faced with the same set of circumstances, do, right? And that is why the the conversation around what the circumstances has to become so important in the evaluation of reasonableness, because mm-hmm. one, uh, the, the this is not a static concept that can be just uh, applied along any case that comes uh, your way. Um, but the other thing that I did want to clarify about uh, the reasonable person, the determination is not whether the action was most reasonable, that this was the most reasonable thing that she could have done. Right, yeah. The determination is that that it is reasonable for her to act that way. So the onus on, as far as the law goes, on accused women who have uh, killed their violent partners uh, in terms of intimate homicide is that she just needs to be able to establish that what she did was reasonable in terms of like she acted reasonably uh, in terms of her self-defense claim. Because I think you uh, wrote before that initially the reasonable person was a person of incredible sound mind not going through these traumatic experiences Mm -hmm. and anyone from the outside or people from the outside could say, well, why don't you just leave? And I'm sure women like in the situation get told that all the time but mm-hmm. you're saying that this new reform uh brings into mind her context not just the person on the street it's somebody in that state so i i do want to clarify one thing so right now the way it works is um this reform only came into effect in 2013 right case law after this reform is still being developed. And when I say case law in terms of precedents that have okay. put into effect this uh, new piece of uh, code and how it's been interpreted by the judges and how the meaning around uh, the evaluating um, 
circumstances using these factors tests is still unclear. So we don't really, the hope is that the law would be much more flexible, that it would allow more of an opportunity for a case by case um, analysis, which would be more nuanced, which would be more uh, fair. But again, that determination is something that we're not clear about. And that's part of my research goal is to speculate as to how this factors test may perform and what the direction of law uh, might look like from this point onwards. So that's what your master's work is, is to take this reform and give it situation, a possible situations and where it could be used? Yeah, in terms of like, it's, it's more of a critique to understand uh, the current state of law, mm-hmm. right? To understand what this means for a specific group of defendants who have been previously disadvantaged in law and what this means in terms of the development of self-defense law in Canada, right? Uh, Prior to that, we have had two big case decisions from the Supreme Court that uh, kind of tried to fill in these voids uh, in statutory law uh, in terms of reasonableness, right? And um, so the first decision that we had, uh, which is quoted uh, more so in the literature, is R versus Lavallee. So in this situation, we had the defendant who was severely abused and she happened to shoot her abuser after uh, he basically made the threat to her that if you don't kill me, I will kill you. And as he said that, he walked away. Right. And she had a gun in her hand because he had basically given her the gun and uh, he was threatening her prior to that. And uh, she out of fear, she shot him. She shot him twice in the head. Mm-hmm. OK, so this was the decision where the Supreme Court, um, Justice Wilson, I believe, said that, you know what, we cannot appreciate the state of the subjective state of her mind without understanding what the psychological effects of battering is on a woman and how that informs her decision to kill someone. So this is where the law introduced the idea of battered woman syndrome, and this could be introduced uh, through expert testimony and uh, could be used to support the claim for uh, self-defense. Now, feminists at this point in time were extremely excited. They were like, this is fantastic. This is good law. This is going to lead to a much more fair treatment of women who just have no other legal recourse, mm-hmm. arguably. And it's going to correct a lot of the masculine normative um, you know, uh, biases that the law has carried. But what we did see after Lavallee came is that the promise of that fair and progressive treatment in Canadian law was just not met consistently. It just didn't happen. We, we still saw courts uh, having a lot of interpretive issues around uh, dealing with self-defense claims of women. So a lot of these women, after this idea of battered women's syndrome was introduced in law, um, were treated as pathological, as being sick, as women who just had no agency and somehow she was delusional and she was complacent in her own abuse. But that's completely wrong because the whole point in law in claiming self-defense is not to challenge the wrongfulness of self-defense act. It's to challenge the fact that she was justified, right? It's not an excuse in law uh, to claim self-defense. It's a justification. So basically the law is saying that we recognize what you did was justified. Mm -hmm. We're not uh, uh, making a deliberation that the the 
the act was wrong versus if you have other legal defenses of necessity or duress, which fall under a more excuses framework. There, the law is basically telling you that what you did is wrong. We recognize that, but it's excusable because we understand there were other factors. So that's more of a um, insanity, they call it. Maybe well, insanity is a different form where it's completely to do with capacity. So there are yeah. three different categories, broadly speaking, of defenses. Insanity, which is basically, uh, you know, you lack the mental ability to be able to make rational choices. The second is excuses, where we recognize that the act that you engaged in was wrong, but your agency to act otherwise was limited because of other circumstances. And that's uh, pertaining to more of the defense of necessity of duress. The third uh, framework for defenses is justifications. That's mm -hmm. where self-defense falls in. And that's where the law is saying that we're not challenging that what you did is wrong. We're telling you that that's, we understand and we, uh, we're we not frowning on the situation as it being wrongful or undesirable. So there is a completely different uh, agency and empowerment level for all of those three different frameworks. Because can you imagine if a woman was basically told killing him, it was wrong. Like, and, and completely negates the whole experience of abuse and um, the other, uh, you know, institutional failures in terms of policing failures and intervention failures that she might have experienced. You know, the you're basically telling her that, you know, you were just wrong to kill. And that this is not the law's way of saying that it's okay to kill, but this is the law's way of understanding uh, that certain certain acts are justified given circumstances. So just to uh, get an idea, what would be an outcome if uh, like a case was ruled to be justified in this sense? Um, would it carry something like a prison sentence or other punishment? Or is it that it doesn't carry a punishment in terms of um, so if a, if a self-defense claim yes. is successful, yeah. Well, if a self-defense claim is successful, uh, going for uh, going for so now that that that's a good point mm -hmm. because right now, so even though we have had some great uh, case precedents in judicial decision making from you know R versus Lavalle and following that R versus Mallet in 1998, that's been overruled by statute because okay. statute in Canada is supreme law. It uh, overrules any precedents prior to that. Precedents can still be used to inform judicial judgments, but it's not binding anymore at that point in time. So now that we have new precedents coming in, and if self-defense claims are successful, then it's acquittal, basically, for a woman. Uh, but the more important question is that, are we going to see fair, consistent treatment and more nuanced application of law, which just didn't happen uh, prior to this, even though we had very progressive and uh, interesting case decisions coming on the subject matter. Well, thank you. As a final question, I, I'm, wh where do you hope your research will take you? Because um, this is a, more, more of a technical question, I guess, in, in your life is you're doing this research. What, what, what is the outcome you want from your research? Who do you want to read it? I think, um, or, or rather what I hope for. So first, I I want to clarify the current state of law. 
right? What yeah. is where do we stand in terms of self-defense law? And if this promises more consistent and nuanced application of law. But I think the broader question over here is about uh, women's equality in law, right? Uh, one of the things we need to understand that women are equal to men in terms of procedural rules, but in terms of the substantive element of law, um, there are a lot of factors and uniqueness, so to say, in women's experiences that differentiates uh, uh, a woman from a man. So is that being recognized in law? You know, that's, uh, that is an important question. In terms of professionally, what I'm hoping is that this, um, my research uh, would help inform, you know, uh, more scholarly work on in the area. It would help uh, inform, um, you know, civil society conversations and uh, inform uh, interest group, uh, you know, advocacy efforts. Because again, this is a pretty recent change. It's an exciting change that we are seeing right now, but not a lot has been written on it. Um, so there is a lot to say in terms of speculation about the direction in which this law is moving. Well, thank you very much, Anita Gosh. It was so great to talk to you um, here on the Grad Gradcast podcast from UWO SOGS. Uh, my name is Susan. I've been interviewing, and here's Yemin Chan. Hello. Thank you very much, Ed. It's very uh, exciting work you're doing, and all the best. Well, thank you so much for having me here today. Thank you. Great. Thanks. That's all we got for this week. If you like this episode, share it with someone. Check us all out on Twitter and Facebook. Both you can find through Gradcast Radio. You can go to our website to see more episodes at gradcastradio.ca. And if you want to come on the show and talk about your own research, great line for your CV, go to gradcastradio at gmail.com. The theme is Happy Boy by Kevin McLeod, and we will see you guys next time.